This talk is brought to you by iBiology.org, and this audio was taken from a video available on our website. Do you recognize this photo? You might be a little too young to recognize it, but this is then-President Nixon signing the National Cancer Act. It was December 23, 1971, when the U.S. declared war on cancer. The National Cancer Act promised $1.6 billion of funding for cancer research and a cure for cancer by 1976. It's 2021 now. Do you think we've won the war on cancer? Probably not, but it's not all bad news. In fact, U.S. rates for all cancer deaths have declined over the years. If you look at this chart, tracking the number of deaths due to cancer over time, starting in the 1970s all the way to 2020, you'll notice a really interesting trend. For males in blue, for females in red, and for both sexes in black, there's been a trend decreasing in terms of cancer-related deaths. So since we've declared war on cancer, less people have been dying due to cancer. And the drop in cancer rates is due to the fact that we've made major advances in cancer therapy. Since the 1970s, we've developed so many different ways to treat cancer, including targeted therapies, cancer vaccines, and more recently, immunotherapies. Immunotherapies is a new type of cancer treatment that harnesses your immune system to find and kill cancer cells. It's made a huge impact on oncology. In fact, it's made such a big deal of change that in 2018, the Nobel Prize was awarded to two scientists who helped pave the way for immunotherapy, Dr. Allison and Dr. Hanjo. And this is me in 2016 with Dr. Hanjo. This is before the Nobel, Nobel Prize fame, but he was famous to me, because you know, I'm a scientist too. And this is me in 2017 at the University of Pennsylvania when the FDA approved a new type of immunotherapy that is now treating patients with blood cancers. And these are all really great examples of bench to bedside. What that means is the research that we've done in the lab is transferable and translatable to patient care. But let's take a moment and go back to this graph that I showed earlier. If you've noticed, even though there has been a steady decline in cancer-related deaths, we're not nearing zero quite yet. And if you look back at the clinical trial studies, even under the best circumstances, less than 50% of patients respond to the most advanced immunotherapies available. And so the question in the field is why? Why are so few patients responding to these amazing drugs? And what can we do to bring this number to zero? In order for us to start answering this question, we've got to go back to the concept of this war on cancer. In order for you to fight a war, there are three things that you must do. One, you must know your enemy. Two, you have to have a strong department of defense. And three, you want to have good weapons. Well, we have an amazing department of defense and that's your immune system. And we have, as I mentioned, really cool and awesome drugs or weapons. But what we're not so great at, what we lack a little bit in, is knowing our enemy. There's still a lot we don't understand about cancer. So the first step in trying to know your enemy is to not make assumptions. Unfortunately, we made a pretty big assumption early on. For a while, people thought that tumors were just a heterogeneous mass of cancer cells. Heterogeneous meaning diverse. 
So we knew that there was some diversity in the tumor, but we thought it was all one type of cell, cancer cells. But that actually turns out to be not true. When you look inside a tumor, it's not just a whole bunch of different cancer cells. In fact, when you look inside the tumor, we find that a tumor is really complex and it's a dynamic community of normal cells, cancer cells, and non-cellular components. And together, all of these things make up what we now call the tumor microenvironment. So let's put this all into context with this war on cancer. If we were to consider the human body a nation and the cancer cells our enemy, and the immune system our national defense, and immunotherapies as a type of weapon, the question is, what are the non-immune normal cells doing there? What is their role in tumor progression or tumor development? And that is the question I want to ask with my research. So let's go back to this tumor microenvironment. We've known for a really long time that cancer cells exist in the tumor. We also know that immune cells are there. And what we started to appreciate are the presence of all of these non-immune normal cells, including one major cell type called the cancer-associated fibroblasts. And my research primarily focuses on what the cancer-associated fibroblasts are and what they're doing inside the tumor. So the question is, what are cancer-associated fibroblasts? Are they spies at aiding and abetting cancer cells? Or are they allies fighting alongside the immune cells to fight cancer? It's still not really clear exactly which role these cancer-associated fibroblasts are playing, and it's led to a lot of confusion in the field. So let's take a moment and look at what we do know about cancer-associated fibroblasts. What is the intel? Well, we know that cancer-associated fibroblasts are called activated fibroblasts, which means they are no longer in their resting state. Activated fibroblasts have more functions, they proliferate and grow more, and they produce the non-cellular components that make up the tumor microenvironment as well. They're also heterogeneous, they're diverse. They're not just one type of cancer-associated fibroblasts, but there's various subtypes, and those subtypes have different functions. Some functions are pro-tumorogenic or pro-tumor growth, and other functions are anti-tumor growth, anti-tumorogenic. So if you think about it, cancer-associated fibroblasts can be spies or allies, and that's really confusing. So let's think about it. If cancer-associated fibroblasts are both spies or allies, we have to figure out a way to differentiate between the two. Because if we want to target cancer-associated fibroblasts, we need to know to target the spy and not the ally. So how can we target them and what can we do? Well, one way we can start to identify or distinguish the spies and the allies is by finding specific unique markers. Oh no, not, not these kinds of markers. But markers called proteins that are expressed on the surface of cells or identifiers. A really good analogy are combat helmets from World War II. Here are two images, one of the allied helmets used uh, in World War II, and the others are helmets used by the axes of evil. And I want you to take a close look at these two helmets. Do you think you can recognize the two helmets simply by looking at them? Probably not. In the same way, it's been quite difficult to find unique markers to help distinguish the spies and the allies in cancer-associated fibroblasts. And this is an ongoing challenge for researchers. 
So maybe there's an easier way for us to distinguish the two. Or maybe we can figure out a way to prevent the activation of spies. The activation of spies, the process from resting fibroblasts to becoming cancer-associated fibroblasts, is called the stromogenic switch. And the idea is if we can block the stromogenic switch, we may prevent the activation of these spies. So the hypothesis that I have is that in healthy tissues, there's a very strong stop signal that stops the stromogenic switch, preventing the activation of these spies. But in tumors, there's a mechanism that blocks the stop signal or breaks the stop signal so that the stromogenic switch can be turned on, allowing the formation of these spies. In order for us to start testing this hypothesis, we have to go back to what we do know in tumors. And we can look inside colon cancer tumors to find some kind of clue about what could be a potential stop signal. Why is that? Well, colon cancer is known to have a lot of cancer-associated fibroblasts, which means if there is a lot of cancer-associated fibroblasts, there have to be less stop signal. So if we look inside the colon tumor and we find a lot of cancer-associated fibroblasts and less of some other thing, that some other thing could potentially be the stop signal. So that's exactly what we did. When we looked inside the tumors of colon cancers, we found that colon cancers had less of this protein called IFNAR1. In the top panel, you'll see normal colon tissue and the brown dots staining for IFNAR1, letting you know that this tissue does have this protein available. However, if you look at the colon carcinoma tissue or the colon cancer tissue, you'll notice that there's absolutely no brown staining or no brown dots indicating that there's very little to no IFNAR1 protein. And what this suggests is that since colon cancers have a lot of cancer-associated fibroblasts and less IFNAR1, it's possible that IFNAR1 may be part of the stop signal. So what is IFNAR1? IFNAR1 is an important subunit of the type 1 interferon receptor. Type 1 interferons are a special type of protein called cytokines, and they have many different functions. But what they do in the context of cancer is that they bind to this receptor made up of these two subunits to elicit anti-tumor signals, including activating the immune system to find and kill cancer cells, and also directly killing cancer cells themselves. But what happens inside the context of a tumor is that there are many different factors within the tumor microenvironment that promotes the degradation of IFNAR1. And as a result, you lose all of those anti-tumor signaling events. So let's go back to the hypothesis. So in normal situations, in healthy tissues, you have type 1 interferons, these cytokines with multi multiple functions that bind to the IFNAR1 receptor to activate the stop signal. The stop signal prevents the stromogenic switch, not allowing the activation of spies. However, in the context of tumors, the tumor microenvironment has variable factors that actually promote the downregulation or the degradation of IFNAR1. As a result, you lose that stop signal, and now the stromogenic switch can occur, and cancer-associated fibroblasts, the bad ones, the spies, can be activated. So now the hypothesis is, tumors degrade the stop signal, in this case IFNAR1, to activate spies and ultimately promote tumor growth. And a way to study our hypothesis and test our hypothesis is to use a mutant form of IFNAR1. What the mutant form of IFNAR1 allows us to do is ask whether or not IFNAR1 plays a role in that stop signal. 
So, as I mentioned earlier, in tumors, FNR1 gets degraded. But if we can stabilize it to prevent its degradation, we should be able to maintain the anti-tumor signals. So, using this mutant FNR1, we can start to begin uh, to address our hypothesis of whether or not this receptor subunit is critical for inhibiting the stromogenic switch. So let's go back a little bit more in detail. If we stabilize FNR1, the stop signal stays on. And because the stop signal stays on, the stromogenic switch cannot occur. And as a result, you don't have the activation of cancer-associated fibroblasts. So what we did is we injected mice with tumor cells and looked for tumor growth. And we compared tumor size between wild-type mice, where FNR1 is degraded in all the cells, and SA mice the, that carry the mutant form. So FNR1 is stable in all the cells. And here's a chart tracking out the tumor growth over time. And what you'll see is that tumors grown in the wild-type mice seem to grow faster and larger than in the SA mice. What that suggests is that tumors in mice whose FNR1 is degraded are much larger. So then we went inside the tumor to see what was happening. Are there more activated spies in there? And one way to address whether or not there are more activated spies in the tumor is to stain for different proteins. So we looked for fibroblast activation protein, also called FAP or FAP, and fibronectin, shortened into FN. And these two proteins are really good indications that fibroblasts have been activated. And what you can see here in the top panel of the blue and green stain is that in the wild-type tumors, again, this, these mice have no IFNR1, FAP is highly expressed. There's a lot of green compared to the SA where IFNR1 is stable. And then if you look at FN, fibronectin, another indication that fibroblasts are activated, you'll see there's a lot more brown staining in the wild-type tumors compared to the SA tumors. So what this tells us is that tumors that are grown in wild-type mice, where IFNR1 is degraded, there are way more cancer-associated fibroblasts or way more spies. So our data so far does suggest that IFNR1 may be a really important part of the stop signal. But let's take a quick pause here. Let's go back to the idea of correlation versus causation. What I've shown you so far is correlation. Tumors that are grown in mice where FNR1 is degraded in all cells happen to grow larger. And inside those tumors, there happen to be more activated fibroblasts. But that's all correlative because all of the cells are losing FNR1. In order for us to demonstrate causation, that the loss of FNR1 promotes the activation of spies, we need to have a system where FNR1 is specifically degraded in fibroblasts, and as a result, we see their activation into spies. So that's exactly what we did. We developed a mouse model, a new mouse, a transgenic mouse that's genetically modified so that fibroblasts are the only cells where FNR1 is degraded. And then we asked again, is tumor growth greater in mice where FNR1 is specifically deleted in fibroblasts? And what you see here is that, in fact, if you do lose FNR1 and fibroblast, tumor growth is definitely accelerated. So tumors do grow in mice whose fibroblasts lack FNR1, and fibroblasts only lose FNR1. And when we look inside those tumors again, we do see that there's more FAP, more fibroblast activation protein, indicating that fibroblasts that do lack FNR1 become activated into spies.
So great. What I've shown you so far is that the degradation of IFNR1 induces the activation of these spies, these cancer-associated fibroblasts, that then promote tumor growth. Awesome. But we have to now go into the patient. Are similar things happening in humans? Because as great as it is to demonstrate something in a mouse, we have to be able to correspond that information and associate that with what is going on in people. And so then we looked at human colon cancer tumors, and we asked whether or not IFNR1 and FAP were expressed in the same way in the same space. And when we looked inside human colon tumors, we found that in areas where there's high FAP, high fibroblast activation protein, there's almost no IFNR1. And in areas where there is IFNR1, we see no FAP. And in the cases where both IFNR1 and FAP are expressed, they're spatially segregated. They're not in the same area. So what does this mean? It means that in areas where IFNR1 is abundant, cancer-associated fibroblasts are absent. And this demonstrates to us that when IFNR1 is lost, spies can be activated. So let's summarize what we've learned today. We know that type 1 interferons promote anti-tumor signaling, including the stop signal that blocks the stromogenic switch, preventing the activation of spies. However, tumors have figured out a way to degrade this stop signal by getting rid of IFNR1. And as a result, the stromogenic switch can occur, activating these spies. However, if we stabilize IFNR1 and prevent its degradation, we actually can keep the stop signal on. And as a result, we prevent the stromogenic switch and spies are not activated. Now that you know this information, let's go back to our concern. Cancer-associated fibroblasts can be spies or allies. Very confusing, not the greatest news. But what my research revealed is that we may be able to prevent the activation of the spies by stabilizing FNR1. So good news. And at this time, I like to present this little quote that I think perfectly represents what research is. Little victories that lead to bigger victories that affect the battles that eventually win the war. Winning begins small. So we may not have won the war on cancer, but we've definitely won a few little battles. And I think there's some hope that one day we will win this war. So what's next? What is my research taking me now? Well, I want to go back to this problem, the ability to distinguish the spies from the allies by identifying unique markers. I mentioned earlier that this was an ongoing challenge, right? Well, there are way more tools now, including single cell RNA sequencing, that allows us to really dig into the details a little bit more, allowing us to revisit those helmets or those markers. So let's go back to those two helmets that I mentioned earlier that may be a little bit hard to distinguish at first glance. When you zoom into these helmets, you'll notice that there are subtle details that are different. The Italian M33 has this little nub at the top of the helmet, while the Greek M34 has two smaller dots in the bottom. And just the way we can see these details by zooming in, using single cell RNA sequencing and brand new technologies, we can zoom into the details of cancer-associated fibroblasts to start dissecting the different markers that may allow us to really separate out the spies from the allies. So I just want to take this time to thank the lab where I did 
uh, predominantly all of my cancer-associated fibroblast research. That's the Fuchs lab at the University of Pennsylvania. And now I'm in Yale using single-cell RNA sequencing to identify those markers. And I'm so grateful to be a part of this experience. Thank you.